welcome to the For Real For Real podcast, where we share our reality and perspectives on what's going on in the world of pop culture, sports, relationships, society, and much, much more. All while keeping it real and getting into the shits, as we like to say. This is your boy, Trevor. I'm Jeff Brooks, the Renaissance man. This is your boy, Big Easy. Let's get this show on the road, man. Let's roll with it. All right, all right, all right. Back again another week, man. Fellas, what's going on, man? I just got some really, really, really bad news, as if I expected anything else to happen with my beloved New York Knicks. But how are y'all feeling? Man, it's been an exciting week. We're just coming from my forever president, Barack H. Obama, slam dunking on 45 at the DNC convention. Guys, it's really important that we get out and vote this time. And um, I'm excited. Looking forward to it. Trevor, I have the same heavy heart you do about our beloved New York Knicks. So I think by the time we talk about it, it, it won't be breaking news. But the New York Knicks have the eighth pick in the 2020 draft for any Knicks fan that's out here crying into a bottle, just like over the last 20 years. There you go. And I would say one of life's greatest mystery is that Trevor still has a full head of hair and a pretty crispy hairline. I don't know how that's possible being a Knicks fan. As a matter of fact, he should be cited for child abuse because he has made his number two, his son, a Knicks fan as well. I don't understand why you would do that to the kid. Let him be a Lakers fan. The colors are prettier. The weather is better. The women are nicer. Just have him be a Lakers fan. As torturous as a life as I've set him up for, I will at least cover myself and say I've not subjected him to watching any Nick games this year. Because luckily, this time of year, even with COVID and everything else going on, there have been better things to watch on television, as if the Knicks have ever been good to watch on television, but I digress. And one of those things, man, is, is Lovecraft Country, man. I've been really excited to see the show come to life, man. And it feels good to see a drama coming on HBO with a predominantly Black cast. And the first episode was dope, man. And it, the, the rest of the season looks to be really exciting as well. So that was something I really wanted to jump in with you guys. But just so happened that I have a, a longtime friend and someone I've looked up to for a few years now who's kind of become an expert on the show, man. So I'm um, proud to welcome another guest to the For Real For Real podcast, the great one and only Hayden Green, who is the Director of Multicultural Affairs at Manhattan College and a multi-hyphenate man leading the charge on many fronts in the world. And I'll let him introduce himself, man. So welcome to the show, Hayden. He said a multi-hyphenated man, and that's one way of describing it. Thank you, Trevor. It is a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, yeah, Trevor and I go back over 15 years. Uh, how's that for aging you, right? <laughs> man, I'm feeling old, man. But I mean, we're, we're all aging well, man. I mean, I, I still got my hairline intact, man. Hayden is still running around here. Hayden gets more engagement on Facebook than I do, man. So, I mean, he's still popping out here. Uh, so, I mean, we're aging like fine wine, man. Well, Facebook is the only place I'm getting engagement because that's where the old folk hang out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, so Trevor knows me from the higher education world, but also a, uh, a fine art photographer 
and uh, you know, uh, trying really hard to to ply my way on that side. But you may have also seen me on uh, CBS during Black History Month before the world got locked down. We were doing a couple of snippets for Black History Month in the New York City area. So that was also fun. So I'm a former spoken word artist or a forever spoken word artist. You can't really be former in that, I guess. And like Trevor, uh, a dad of dad of two girls and a wife to one. And I will say I have two kids and my wife will tell you that she has three. So, you know, fun times. I'm proud that you said wife to one, man, because otherwise that might have been a little tricky to keep in the show, man. Uh, so glad you admitted that part, man. But but yeah, so again, we kind of we let off this, you know, kind of bringing you on the show and, and getting in reactions to, to this great drama, man, as as you had set up this Facebook group. That was the first time that I realized there was something deeper going on with the show and how it kind of came about. But I just had like general reactions. I was just like, oh, this is dope. And I remember hitting Sam and Jeff and we kind of like got in on the trailer. So like as far as like expectations coming into the show, like Sam, what were you thinking you were jumping into when you watched the show versus what you actually saw this past Sunday night? So maybe like a few weeks ago, I had seen like a YouTube video on some of the backstory that talked a little bit about HP Lovecraft and all that. But even prior to that, first time I see the trailer, I'm like, so this is like a set in like the 50s, the 60s. So this is like set somewhere Jim Crow-ish, but it's like somehow futuristic. And I'm like, how do we kind of like mesh these two worlds? Immediately you watch a trailer like that and it, it totally piques your interest. It especially piques your interest because, you know, it's the lead characters are black. And then, you know, you're looking at things, you're like, oh, Jordan Peele's connected to this. Misha Green, you know, like, I don't know if people have ever watched the show Underground. That was a pretty dope show when it was around, right? Definitely caught my eye right away. Yeah, that's what lured me in the door too, seeing Jordan Peele. I wasn't familiar with Misha's work before, but seeing J.J. Abrams also attached. And Jeff, you know, I, I know you're someone that took a while to even come around to like Game of Thrones. So what was it like for you to kind of catch wind of this show and the fantasy involved with it and then go out and actually watch it? Yeah, well, it's actually because of shows like Game of Thrones, which made me more open for a show like Lovecraft Country. You know, I was in a very dark place in regards to what we were looking for as far as television. The fact that it doesn't seem like anything new is coming out. And then by surprise, I just see this preview and I'm like, oh my goodness, I definitely got to check it out. And then it was the news. And I do want to get your perspective on this, Hayden. The fact that Watchmen isn't coming back for a second season. At least that's what I understand is to be the case. And from what I understand, a lot of great reviews, multiple Emmy nominations, like very much hit society at the right time. You know, it seems like we're almost living in a post-Watchmen world right now, you know, with everything that's going on. I think it came on at the perfect timing. So I do want to get your perspective on your feelings on what kind of void Watchmen left. And for me, just seeing that I know that it was a void that there was to be with Watchmen, Lovecraft Country came in at the right time. It's definitely socially conscious, but it just takes us back to the past. And it throws a little bit of fantasy in it too as well. So I do like the historical accuracy, also with the revisionist history, with a fantasy twist to it. So far, so good. Yeah, if you're watching and paying attention with The Watchmen, the one thing that we knew from the beginning that it was always going to be one season. There was a lot of talk about the fact that maybe they would try to do something else, but we kind of knew that this was going to be a one and done thing that they wanted to tell a story and then just leave it off there. And Watchmen and Lovecraft Country are two pieces of work that have finally fulfilled something that I've been asking for for generations. And 
I say generations, like I'm that old, but I've been asking for a very long time, but it's taken generations to actually get to it. What I'm talking about is having Black people tell stories that don't necessarily have to do with the Black experience, but having the Black experience, seeing these things through the Black experience. So let me explain this. A lot of times when Black people are asked to direct films or to act in films, they are slave narratives or they're about the civil rights or they're about what happened to Black people in this country or what happened to Black people in South Africa or all of these different things about the Black experience. And I kept on saying, it's like, you know what I want? I want to see a science fiction movie that just has Black people in it. That just happens to be from the Black perspective. It's not about the Black experience. It just happens to have Black actors, Black directors. Or I want to see a thriller that has Black people in it, but it's laced with, okay, this is yada, 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 and this is a historical tome and all the rest of that stuff. And I was like, that's what's missing in the genre. It's missing the Black voices and like, what would Freddy Krueger, what would Friday the 13th look like if it was all Black people? First of all, the movie would be five minutes long because everybody would be like, ah, I'm out of here, right? But I think that there was a real need for all of these different genres to be told through the eyes of people of color. And Jordan Peele is, like, I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peele. And Jordan Peele has been challenging that left, right, and center. And he has done an amazing job. When you think about Us, the movie Us, that's a seminal work in horror, but it doesn't pander to the Black experience. It's a Black family that's going through it, and they react the way Black people and people of color look at it and go, yep, that's exactly what I would do in that situation, right? And that's what we've been missing, and that's what we've been looking for. And so Lovecraft Country and uh, Watchmen are two pieces of work that have done that for me at the very least. But what has been amazing is that they have been able to interlace actual factual historical evidence that's been happening in this country and weave it into the storyline without it being heavy handed. And I cannot tell you how happy I was that after years and years and years of being a person of color and knowing about the Tulsa massacre and Black Wall Street to finally have people go, wow, that's a horrible thing. You know, they depicted that for the show. I was like, no, that actually happened. And people going, what? And so we're now starting to see the same thing with Lovecraft Country, with things like Sundown Towns and things like that. So it's like, it's amazing, and I'm really, really excited. I'm so hated. Uh, you brought up an excellent point in regards to how Black people react and respond in these horror movie-driven situations. And it had me thinking about this weird relationship between the comic book, sci-fi, Black geek, white geek um, community. Whereas you've seen all the pushback from that community when they made Hooded Justice Black or the main character in Watchmen Black. And even though there was no real backstory to Hooded Justice in the Watchmen novel, the developers of the show took that creative liberty to make that character Black. Uh, you see the pushback anytime Marvel or DC, you know, redoes a superhero and he make that person Black. And even with Battlefield Earth, and that goes back to the 90s in regards to that movie having Black characters in, in it and so forth. So, like, what did you make of where we're going and just the odd pushback that we're getting from something that honestly could be anything, right? It's make-believe. 
So if you want to make this character black, it should be perfectly okay because it's not as if you're making George Washington black or making Tupac white. You know, it's still made up stuff. You even see it right now with people saying they would never watch a James Bond film if Idris Elba is the lead for that. So what's to be made of this, you know, as far as this just obsession with keeping things uh, very Eurocentric in this sci-fi world? I read a quote one time that said that racism is so ingrained in our culture that when we fight back against it, it feels like we're fighting against America. And so the point of it is, is that we have been so acculturated to seeing things from a European point of view that when anything shifts that point of view, it feels like an affront to our very existence. And you will hear me talk, if you've ever heard me talk, the first thing that I always talk about is the idea of diminishing resources and the fact that if I give you something, that somehow that takes something away from me. And so if I now give you a character, as speaking from a majority identity, if I give you a character and make that person a person of color, that means that I have one less character, but you have all of these other characters. I got one, right? Or I got two. And people are really just showing their colors because they can imagine a character being green, but they can't imagine them being black. And it's we're starting to see the manifestation of all of these different ways that have been, we have been oppressed. And there's a, such a thing as called a blurred. And I'm sure you guys have heard this. And that's a black nerd. Why is there a term for a black nerd? Because even in nerddom, even in comic book culture, there was a separation between the races where, you know, you couldn't be a comic book geek and be accepted by majority geeks. We had to create our own thing. And that's where the term blurred comes from. And so there's a whole history of black people not being accepted into sci-fi because it was too highbrow, you know, it's too sophisticated for the, the mind of a, a person of color. And so the more people, you know, accept it, the more people are really interested in getting involved in it, the more that community grows. And it's now we're starting to see movies being made for us um, to enjoy because we do enjoy sci-fi. We enjoy horror. We enjoy it just as much as any other uh, demographic in this country. But we've been pushed to the margins for so long because anything that takes an intellectual mind has been deemed uh, part for the people in power. So it's a longstanding thing. So, and, and I'm just happy to see that twist and, and that, that pivot happening now. And I think Watchmen really kicked the door down for a lot of that, where it's like, oh, okay, we don't have to always go down this route. And the Black character doesn't have to be the comic foil, or the Black character doesn't have to be the first person killed. It's really encouraging to see, and I'm really excited to see where else this goes. I think you brought up a great point as well with kind of talking about the blurs, right? And why there's even a name for this group of fandom. But you did mention that you specifically have been looking to find a sci-fi project, be it a movie or a show that you could see yourself in, right? That you were hoping to see characters that looked like you represented in the stories that you like to hear and watch and consume. How to get specifically into Lovecraft now, how did the show, at least through the first episode or so, live up to your expectations of what you were hoping for? Separate and apart from the fact that they're just black characters, did the show live up to what you were hoping for? 
and what do you think that's done in terms of like kind of pushing forward the diversity, if you will, of casting and kind of opening up that that door for more people to kind of fill those roles for that that group of fans. And even within the within the first episode, there's conversations about casting, and I'll get into that in a second. I think that if the first episode is evidence, I think we're in for a really good ride. I think that they are doing an excellent job of incorporating uh, pieces of Lovecraft's uh, science fiction and adding that in applicable places. They're not like just throwing stuff in, right? Thulu, it doesn't shows up within the first five minutes of the show, but it's in a campy way, which is exactly the way that you would expect him to show up. And we hope to see that maybe that'll come in later on down the line. And so the Lovecraft lore is interwoven in each part of the scene and it's doing a really good job. But more importantly, it's not doing a disjustice to what it felt like to be part of the Jim Crow South during that particular period as a person of color, as a Black person. I think that the casting is really strong. I enjoy watching the characters. Uh, I could watch Courtney Vance do anything. Uh, I think he's a strong actor and I enjoy his work. And, and I think he brings that. He's not campy. He's he's very serious. The love scene between him and his wife was just really adult love and just it wasn't overdone. It felt real. And so all of those things were just very much on point and they're, they're hitting the right note. It's right at the, at the right place. There is a conversation about Smollett's role and why she's in that role, because everybody else is dark skinned, but Letty is this very light skinned woman. And uh, they haven't alluded to it yet. Although when she had a conversation with her, her sister and talked about going downtown and getting a job, it was obvious that she could get a job downtown, but her sister couldn't because she was of darker skin. And what her sister was in her mindset was, you could get a job as a maid. And Letty was like, no, I'm going to go downtown and get a job in the department store. Letty can do that in the Jim Crow South. Her sister could not. And so that's, that is real and that's something that, that existed in that time. There is a question as to why Letty has to be light-skinned. And we hope that there's some answer to that going down the line because it seemed too obvious if for right now to have Smollett play that role. It could have been, there are a plethora of other actresses that could have done that role who were closer in, in approximation to the skin tone of everybody else in the cast. That light skin doesn't seem to do her any favors in the Jim Crow South, but it does her plenty of favors in Chicago. So it, it kind of just goes to show uh, how our community uh, views colorism. Well, I did want to just point something out too. I, I'm not sure if you guys noticed this throughout, you know, years of watching movies, but uh, Journey Smollett, she has that 1940s, 1950s poise down pat. I mean, when she got on stage and she started dancing and swinging her hips and moving her arms up, I said, wow, man, you can't even act that. She's got that time frame just master to a T. Great acting, but also great casting. I think she's just made um, to play roles from that particular era. She does a great job with that. Yeah, she's an old soul, and she pulls that off pretty well, yes. So, I mean, again, I'm in for the ride. You know, they got me no matter what. I just hope that they just didn't pick, like, a pretty face, a uh, somebody who has played this role multiple times just to, like, stunt cast, you know? So we're hoping that her skin tone has something to do with the storyline and the colorism of the South at that time. 
And she definitely could uh, run like a track star in high school, for sure. You she see her run? To, she has to write form. form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. They told us, like, no, you got to put your arms up. Like, right. she had good form. She could yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> and, and black people would run in a horror situation, right? There is no tripping and falling as, you know, the, like typically we might see in a slasher film or anything like that. Although oh. Courtney did fall down. Oh, well, he got bad knees. <laughs> but you heard what he said. I fell down and I stayed down. <laughs> That's right. Smart man. That's right. Obviously, the, the, the series is called uh, Lovecraft Country. Let's talk about who Lovecraft is like what who can can we talk a little bit about who he was as a person and why kind of like the characters kind of live in fear around like some of the things that you know as they kind of like look at maps and and try to identify what are safe places right and not necessarily just related to to the green book but just identifying what exactly it means to be in Lovecraft country so Lovecraft is a horror writer. H.P. Lovecraft is a horror writer who was born in the 1800s. He started writing a little bit after 1913, 1914 in that era. And he was a horror writer. And he was pretty much ahead of his time, but like in the fashion behind certain other famous writers as well. But he didn't come to very much notoriety while he was alive, as is a lot of the times the case with writers. He is famous for his creations, his woman on the moon, woman in, oh, I forget the name of it now, but like he was weird. His fam most famous character is Sulu, which is a sea monster like with tentacles and and stuff like that and so sometimes you'll see octopi saying that talking about them being the lord and master kind of things like that but he became famous later on as a horror writer now he was also known to be a misogynist and a racist by the way that he portrayed the characters in his book. And so that is also part of his legacy as well, because like you have all of these sci-fi aspects of his character and the way that he's portrayed these monsters. And he was very inventive, the way that he came up with all of these things. Like I said, very weird. But he also was lambasted for uh, having these characters always be damsel in distresses, he had uh, racist overtones whenever he depicted people, people of color. Again, he was writing in Jim Crow South. Well, even before the Jim Crow South, because he was writing before all of this stuff happened, uh, before Jim Crow was put into effect and the laws were put into effect. He even wrote an essay about the creation of the Negro. And the essay actually exists. Uh, you, it's alluded to in the show. It's an essay that imagines God creating the Negro, but he creates Negro as an afterthought. He like creates everything beautiful and he does everything. He puts everything together in this world. And he, then he goes, you know what? I'm going to add these black folk over here. Yeah, just to just to add it along. And he believes this stuff, right? He writes this as tome. And so he is both you know, heralded as a sci-fi writer, but also lambasted as somebody who had really, really problematic thought processes when it came to women and people of color. Thank you for gracefully navigating that work that he wrote, man. When I came across his name and the backstory of the show, that was one of the first things I saw on Wikipedia, like that, that poem on the creation of the N-word. And my first thought was, why does this guy with this history, regardless of how impactful or great his works of writing might have been in the time, why does his story get elevated, especially in this time? 
like so thought that came to my mind is was the approach to cast black people in this show and kind of flip things and kind of how you tell the story made to kind of make up for the racist that's kind of behind some of these stories. Like, I feel like that was something that was a little bit questionable to me because I feel like if everyone knew, because I went into the show, not like, like I said, I just thought it was a black drama kind of coming on with a little bit of sci-fi. looked great. Like, I didn't know who Lovecraft was. I didn't know what Lovecraft Country was. But as more people do their homework like I did, that question is going to come up. Like, why would you kind of pick this type of person to, to highlight and bring to life into a series so yeah, do you guys think that the casting was done to kind of quell that type of uprising and, and blowback that they might have gotten as people discovered who H.P. Lovecraft was? Well, I'm not sure what perspective they're approaching it from, from, I guess, black person's perspective or from a more mainstream perspective. But for me, what I see is almost like a metaphor to how we live life as black people, right? You're forced to compartmentalize just what we know about our history in order to get by. So for instance, the money we spend, you have George Washington, he's a slave owner. You got all these you know, racist monuments around us. Are we not gonna go into city halls because it was built by slaves? Are we not gonna spend money because it has George Washington on it? And so I also think it speaks to Atticus enjoying the work of H.P. Lovecraft or whichever author he was reading. I knew it was a racist author that he was reading in a book. It might've been Lovecraft, if I'm not mistaken. And it just goes to show that if, unless we want to go crazy and be angry all the time and be that enraged black person, you kind of have to compartmentalize like all the things we know to be true about society, you know? So yeah, he's a racist, but I also can see some enjoyment. I also know the troubling aspect of professional sports and how it kind of coincides with breeding of slaves. But I still enjoy basketball. I still enjoy watching the combine. I still watch, still enjoy watching the NBA draft. So I think it, you know, kind of like speaks to a greater point on how as black people, we do have to kind of coexist with the evils of society and the evils of our history. James Baldwin has a famous quote. It says, to be a Negro in America is to be in a constant state of anger, right? And so you're absolutely right. Most of the things that we enjoy probably are laced with a history that would confound our allegiance to it, right? And so there is a balance that you have to put, that you have to strike. I do think, though, that this particular show is chose Lovecraft because there was there is such a dichotomy in the way that he is viewed you know heralded as a science fiction writer but also a problematic you know somebody who is absolutely problematic in his worldview and to be clear Lovecraft uh, worldview being problematic, it comes later on. So, you know, it, it's not like when people are picking up his stuff, they're like also knowing that he wrote these essays. It's also, you have to remember at the time, the depiction of people of color and women in books that was par for the course, right? So it's not like he was doing that writing today and people are like, holy crap, how are people reading this, right? This is what this is the way that people were depicted in um, literature in the past. And so it wasn't too far off. But I think that what they are attempting to do, the writers, what the writers are attempting to do is take ownership of it, uh, reclaim that story and show that 
this person, the, you know, these monsters that he created, that these are the real monsters, not the people of color and the women and depicting them as monsters, but like really showing who the real monsters were. I predict that there will probably be a very, a rift between, because, you know, we've already got, you know, spoiler alert, uh, we've already started to see that there is a birthright situation, right? So there is a power that people have that uh, that you gain through your birthright. And I already see that there is going to be a racial divide between the people who claim this birthright. And I predict that that birthright, the people who are not of color will sh- their birthright will show them to be monsters. And and that's kind of like what I think the twist is coming. But I do think that they picked a, an author who you can both revel in and despise at the same time and really show what the country was like during the time that he was doing this writing and talk about how those were really the horrors, not the monsters that are coming out of the woods. Yeah, it's one thing that Scooby-Doo taught us. The real monsters are almost always the humans. It wasn't for those darn kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it is quite telling and frustrating. And I know that, you know, my assumption is that, you know, most people from that region who happen to be uh, non-Black may have held these type of feelings towards African-Americans and other people of color. But it also goes to show is also even problematic in in a more modern era with uh, James R.R., George R.R. Martin in Game of Thrones. I mean, there's been a huge amount of criticism about how characters were portrayed in Game of Thrones. It's like, even in a fantasy world, the slaves still have to be dark-skinned, you know? It just kind of goes to show where, how we still are, even though it's sci-fi and science fiction, it's still representative of many people's worldview and the real world. And that brings up a great point of the representations in the show in real life. And that's one of the things that I know we wanted to get to today is like some of the storyline and the moments in the episode, like looking for a place where it's safe to go and eat if you're black. And the fact that Courtney B. Vance's character is, you know, the guy, the writer of like the local green book. And he's kind of going in and he's luring them into this, uh, to this restaurant where they ultimately find out that they're not welcomed. Like what was you guys reaction to that scene and kind of seeing that kind of come on, like knowing that that's still something that black people have to do to this day whether they're traveling domestically or internationally to kind of like scope out like, oh, what's the neighborhood like there? Like, can I go there and not be called the N-word or not, you know, get into a fight or not have to worry about my family sleeping tight at night? What was it like seeing that play play out on screen? Yeah, I think that there is a historical aspect to that. But as you just mentioned, that's still happening to this day. In fact, there is in the works a modern day green book being put together. And for those people who are uninitiated, the green book was an actual manual, like a travel guide to people who traveled around in the, in the country and would let people know in this particular town, this restaurant is welcoming to people of color and you can go there. And if you wanted to spend the night, this is the hotel that you could go to. And so this was just simply in allowing people to travel in the country. And that's amazing. And the fact that there is a modern day green book coming out is even more jarring. I'm in South Jersey right now and I'm having those experiences right now, like wondering which one of these restaurants can I go into without getting evil stares and, you know, went bike riding and had to rode by a place that had three flags on a pole. One was a American flag and one was a Trump banner and one was an all lives matter banner. 
And as I'm pedaling past this, I'm like, all right, Hayden, time to pedal faster. It's time for you to go, right? So like, this is South Jersey, right? So like, we're not talking about Mississippi here. We're talking about what's supposed to be the progressive North. And this is still happening. And this is still an experience that Black people have to this day. When you said South Jersey, I do want to caveat the fact for those who aren't from Jersey, some parts and sometimes if you're in South Jersey, you might as well be in the South. So I wasn't surprised at all to hear that you can see, you know, a, a Trump flag and an All Lives Matter flag. You know, we've talked about Trump a couple of times uh, through the course of the show. I don't automatically deem someone a racist if they're pro-Trump. But when you combine that with All Lives Matter and if they've got the flag out in front of their house, that's kind of like, don't step on my lawn, you might get shot kind of, you know, warning sign is, is, is what I see it as. So curious to know more from, from you guys, like, like, so like Sam, like, what's it, what's it like for you? Do you kind of, do you relate to that kind of that, that feeling of, of, of worrying where you have to go every day? And like, how did that kind of uh, play out for you as you were seeing that kind of represented in the show? Here's what, what I'd say. I also, you know, in like the last year and a half, I've done like uh, something called like Amazon Flex, right? Where you like deliver packages for Amazon. So any given day, like you might see someone like me just dropping off your package in your, your front door, right? And what I used to always kind of say was, I actually felt safer in the hood at night than I would be going to a very nice neighborhood, right? Because I've always felt that in the hood, Someone will stop and ask me a question of what, what are you doing here? In a nicer, affluent, let's call it, you know, Caucasian neighborhood, they might just call the police and be like, someone's here at my door. I don't know what's going on, right? And that was always the, the kind of fear I had, right? You know, and I think that, I think that's part of like the, the Black experience, you know, and, and even like still like in, in modern times, like, you know, this is 2020 and I can still feel that way. I remember, you know, and then I feel like we've talked about this in, on the podcast as well. You know, there was a few Major League Baseball players that were talking about, like, their experience when they go play at in Boston. You know, like, they're getting, you know, the N-word yelled at them. They're getting all these crazy things that are happening. We, we have some athletes that are putting in their contract, like, no, 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 you can't send me to Boston, right? So, like, these things in a major American city are happening, and again, unfortunately, like that is the, the black experience for a lot of people. But but how do we, you know, in the show, they called them Sunset Towns, right? With the sheriff or whatever he is kind of chasing him out of town, forcing him to, to you know, to call himself the N-word and really just demeaning him and reducing him to almost nothing and scaring him out of town. Fortunately, I've not had an episode that serious, right? But like you do hear stories of the places not to go, right? And even like we said, present day, like I always, I mean, Jeff, and you, you were one of the first one to kind of tell me about a town called Clark, New Jersey, right? You know, I think I might've stopped at your house or something. Like you're like, hey, well, we can go through Clark, make sure you drive slow, make sure you kind of go. And that's the honor of Green Book. It's just like, hey, you just know if you're in this town and you get stopped, you're going to be subject to whatever that cop is feeling like doing that day because they've got a badge and, and you don't. So What's it like for you guys, like other sunset towns that you've come across, and how do you navigate those today? You guys know that I've been very active on, you know, the social justice realm. Part of our discussions, we've been passing around statistics about certain cities and towns and their police record, the proportion of where they pull over or arrest Black people and other um, persons of color. And the statistics are, I mean, you're talking about like 
certain towns like Cranford, Clark being one of them, Garwood, Scotch Plains, where it's almost at like 1,400% more likely. Like it's, the numbers are so astronomical, but it also just gives more credence to something that we've been talking about all these years. It's not something that we just make up or it's not even an exaggeration. This is more than likely going to be your experience if you travel through these towns every single day. So much to the point to that same town that I was speaking to you about, Clark, New Jersey, which growing up, we used to call it clark We put three Ks at the end of it. They're currently under county investigation. So Union County is actually taking over that police force as they're doing an internal or I guess external inter- investigation about the town. So these are things that I always know to be true. I've been extra cautious going through there. I fortunately have not had, I think I might have been bothered by police maybe twice being in Clark, uh, which is far less than a lot of my black counterparts for that town. But for me, my experience might be even a little bit different because I do have that ability to code switch. I can name drop a police officer. I can name drop, you know, a mayor, or I even know the mayor of Clark, honestly. You know, so for me, my experience is a little bit different. But in the same token, my next door neighbors up until three months ago had the Confederate flag on one of their dashboards. I think you guys seen it before. It made my company feel very uncomfortable. I never actually had, you know, a a long conversation with the parents. I've always had conversations with the children. And I've always thought that their karma was the fact that one of the daughters is about to have a child with an Hispanic gentleman. And the other son, the youngest son, has been dating a black young lady for the last three years. So I kind of just chalk it up as like, like a wash on that end. And uh, uh, Trevor, one of the things that I wanted to also clarify is that whereas not every Trump supporter is a racist, every Trump supporter has decided that racism is not a deal breaker for them. And that's the important distinction. Precisely. But it is. But many are racist, though. Yes. Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, think, I think that part goes without saying. But there are people who toe the party line and don't consider themselves to be racist. They're definitely not anti-racist, but they don't consider themselves to be racist. But they have decided that racism is not a deal breaker for supporting a candidate for them. That's the, the difference there. The really interesting thing is, is that we start going down the line and, and, you know, when we start talking about Sunset Towns, we start have to talk about privilege and uh, one of the things that gets conflated in this country is privilege and wealth. Uh, And so you'll see people who, especially who are working class white people, who will say, how can you say that I have white privilege? I don't have any money. I don't have any homes or, and you know, like I'm struggling just like you. And I have a tough time. I can't find a job and yada, yada, yada. And I tell them all the time, it's like, you have white privilege because everything that you are going through, at no point in time do you ever have to worry, Am I? did I not get this job because I'm white? Did I not get this mortgage because I'm white? That never has to cross your mind. And none of the struggles that you're going through are because of the color of your skin. And I tell people all the time, it's like, if you've never had the Supreme Court have to lay down a judgment in order to justify your existence, then you are experiencing privilege. Just in New York, and I tell the story all the time, in New York City, last year, they just passed a law that made it legal for women to wear their hair naturally at work. They cannot be discriminated against because of the way that they wear their hair, the way that it naturally comes out of their head. 
They had to pass a law for that. If you've never had to have anybody defend you in a court of law because of who you are just naturally, then you are experiencing privilege. It's as simple as that. Man, you drop a gem today, Hayden. But yeah, man, that's what I wanted to go back to, though, is in your experience and, and role that you have, right, in dealing with younger people and, and kind of working across cultural barriers and different ethnic experiences, etc. Do you think a show like this where you can kind of see, and I feel like at this point there's been so much on the screen, like we talk about all of the movies that kind of depict the the slave kind of narrative and, and, and all that stuff, right? All the, the Jackie Robinson stories and like, oh, here's, and, and Green Book, even that, that trash movie, which we, we don't need to get into. But do you think seeing, like, if for all the people knowing the audience that HBO has, right, and the reach that they have, for all the people that are watching this show and that will now kind of come across what it can be, even if it seems like absurd to think that a sheriff would pull someone over, literally follow them and run them out of town. But just to see that moment and know that that is, whether based in true fact or fiction, a slice of reality for people like us. Do you think that that will do anything to open the eyes of folks who have kind of walked around and said, like, I don't know, what, what are you talking about? I don't have any privilege, right? Do you think that they're going to take that and internalize it to kind of open up their eyes or are they just gonna brush it off as, as TV dramatization? So for Watchmen, I had a Monday blog. Every Monday I would break down everything that we saw in Watchmen and we had, so I did it twice. I did it once publicly where everybody could see it. And then I did it again with certain different entries for the people of color group, right? But I broke everything that I saw down on that blog every Monday because I knew that there were people who were watching that and going, wow, that would be crazy if that was real and needed to be told that is crazy and it was real. And so I think that for as much as I have influence, as for as much as my sphere of influence exists, I feel an obligation to have that conversation with uh, people who uh, may not have that experience, may not have that history, and uh, making sure that they understand that the things that you're seeing here, they're fictionalizing it, but this is based in truth. And so I also, as I mentioned, the director of multicultural affairs at Manhattan College uh, created a, a discussion group at the college. So people who were watching the Watchmen show were able to come in and have a brown bag lunch and sit down and talk about what they saw. And a lot of the students, sometimes when they saw that, they were like, I don't, I don't understand what, what's happening here. Why did they do that? Like, for instance, the second episode of the Watch, of Watchmen, when they rained the pamphlets down on the black soldiers and the Germans were saying, why are you fighting for a country that doesn't love you? You should come fight for us. That actually happened. The Germans actually did that. And so... There is so much of our history that is untold, suppressed, and erased that it seems fantasy-like when things come up to light that there are such things as count places that people could not go to. And there was a piece that I loved the most in, in this episode was when she asked, why is the White House white? And it's because they burned it to the ground. And that was the reason that they were sitting in this, in this diner that was also painted white because they had burned out the original diner that was sympathetic to Black folk, right? And just like those kind of things where it's like they just burned down the places because they allowed Black people to eat there. Yes, that happened and happened often. And so I think that 
just being able to have those conversations with people where it's like, wow, they really took it there, but that could never happen, right? And it's like, no, this is actually on the tame side of what the existence was. It was far worse. And not that long ago, too, when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's the 1950s. You know, my mother was, was born in Kentucky, right? She, she's from the, my mother's from like real Jim Crow country, grandparents from West Virginia. And on my mom's birth certificate, it says Negro. And you guys see my mom, my mom looks pretty young. So this is not like a long time ago. And the thing that really trips me out is how we allow society to very easily do revisionist history. I constantly have to remind my friends that in 1968, when Dr. Martin Luther King, the year that he was assassinated, Gallup did a poll, and he was the most hated man or public figure in the country at the time. Muhammad Ali was labeled a coward by most of society. Even black people were calling him a coward. You know, they pitted, you know, the, the Joe Frazier's against him and so on and so forth. And you'd be hard pressed to find any 75-year-old white person today that would admit to disliking Muhammad Ali. They would tell you that he's the greatest. They would tell you that they walked, lock, and stepped. That, oh yeah, you see that picture of Selma? Yeah, I was right behind John Lewis. I was, you know, I'm right next to Bernie Sanders. Like, no, you were. And these are gonna be the same people who are going to talk about how much they love Colin Kaepernick and the sacrifice he made and he totally supported kneeling for police brutality 25, 30 years from now. It, this is also recently. This is what our grandparents experienced. My mother was in second grade, I believe, when Dr. King was assassinated. I remember second grade like it was yesterday. So the, this is just extremely recent times, and we can't forget that. And I'm glad that HBO, they're doing a remarkable job at really showing the brutality of not even ancient history, recent history. To even go back to the actual show, like in true like Jordan Peele fashion, like the scarier things are what humans are doing. It really had nothing to do with, no, don't want to do any spoilers here, but like the way the episode ends with some creatures, like that was the least of the worries, right? Them running out of a restaurant, you know, being chased by people who are shooting at them, that's terrifying. Them being chased down by a police officer who's literally ramming their car into them, that's scary. And them being drug out to the woods, by a police force with shotguns as they are kneeling, that is terrifying. And those are things that are real and really happen. And they'll happen to this day. Yeah, my heart was definitely racing more uh, with the sheriff um, and the sun going down than the Stranger Thing monsters uh, uh, attacking those police officers. Listen, you talk about the fact that this is really still happening and, and is not so old. There is a comparison. Dr. King... Anne Frank and Barbara Walters would all be the same age if they were alive today. So we're not talking about like hundreds of years ago. We're talking about pretty recent history. And you're absolutely correct where people can trace their lineage back to slavery and people can remember. There are people alive who can remember these things. And so there is a real effort to have a revisionist history, as you mentioned, Jeff, because America also doesn't want to have that festering wound just sitting on its forehead. You know, as much as they can say, I was like, all right, let's keep that in the back and then 
But you know, 9-11, never forget. But like, let's forget 400 years of slavery. And I think the 1619 Project was, is one of the things that like, has ripped that wound open again, and which is why there's so much discussion about whether or not to allow this to be taught into high schools these days, because America doesn't want to admit to having that that history, and America doesn't want to really talk about what that really was. You know, I read a history book. There was a history book that described the slaves as having come over to work in the fields in the South, as if it was like an embargo situation where like, oh, you know, there's a great work opportunity in the new world. Let's just go over there and get a new job and just like glamorized it. And that's the way that people would rather remember the, the sordid history of the country. But I do believe that we have to really be honest with ourselves if we're going to move forward at all. Is that the book that Kanye read? That, that yeah. certainly sounds like a choice. Yes, Oh, man. I mean, speaking of that, not to get too far off topic, but did any of y'all see... So I saw John Sally did an interview. Sally used to play for like the Pistons and I think he played for the Bulls. On Vlad? Um, yeah, if you have to DJ tell somebody Vlad. who John Sally is, then we got the wrong order. Hey, hey, we got we got a <laughs> we, we got a mix, man. We got people from uh, outside of the country listening to the show too. So just but yeah, but yeah, he was defending what Kanye said about, you know, Harriet Tubman and how she didn't free people and slavery being a choice. And I'm almost ashamed to admit that I saw his points. Did any of you guys hear that interview as well and kind of get what he was saying? No, I didn't see the interview. I will say that I think I'll give Kanye the benefit to say that I believe I think where he's coming from in a sense to where I don't think he's necessarily coming down on Harriet Tubman. I just think that he's saying that we kind of like stop putting our, I've had a history of being very, you know, satisfied with just progress you know, in recognition, like even the terminology Black Lives Matter, it's like we're trying to just vent our oppressor that, hey guys, you know, like, please like us, you know? And I think that Kanye is saying that we never really push further beyond that, that we have to understand the power of economical independence versus just the illusion of being free, that we were never really quite free, we we're just free-ish. And so to go and leave slavery to work for somebody else for free wages, it's not true progress. And I don't think he really was blaming Harriet Tubman for that. He was just saying that that literally was the reality, that, you know, we went into a bad situation to another bad situation. It just so happened that the first situation was a lot worse and the next situation wasn't that much better. So I've had the pleasure of actually talking to John Sally a couple of times. John, he's funny. You know, he left basketball and took up comedy, right? I think that he is the master of the provocative take and does a lot of things for the humor content of it. And so I could, I have not seen the interview, but I could see how John would be like, yo, he might actually have a point there. But the thing that I would tell Kanye and many people who think like Kanye, is that because our history has been glamorized so much, there is a concept like, yo, if that was me, I wouldn't take that from the slave master. I would do this, that, that, and the other. If I was in the field, I would rebel. If I was did it, I would be Crispus Addicts. I wouldn't be no house, blah, 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 blah. And people love to imagine themselves with today's consciousness in that era and you cannot it is apples to oranges and so i think that yes he may have a point in yes we left a, a slave situation to go 
into almost an indentured servitude situation, but when there are zero opportunities and they are literally killing people with impunity for trying to advance themselves, you can't discredit what was done in the back in those times. You cannot apply today's sensibility with what happened back in those times. I've got recommended reading. It's a book called White Rage, and they talk about the Reconstruction era when freed slaves started building their own schools from the Freedmen's Borough, and when these white abolitionists and, and black freedmen were building um, schools throughout the South, actually having the audacity to learn how to read and was excelling at a very accelerated pace. Of course, the Ku Klux Klan and other white terrorist groups burned these schools down to the ground. So the moment that we were even trying to do good for ourselves, you know, they were telling you, nah, it's almost like an obsession. And, and kind of go back to the show, literally, somebody took the time to build a 12-foot billboard on a highway that said, N-word, don't let the sun set down on you, or don't be here when the sun sets down. Like, why do you care about us that much for? Like, why are you so upset? Just let us live. Like, we ain't bothering you. Like, we want to make our own. But every time we try to make our own, you are constantly trying to destroy it. It goes back again to what I constantly say. There is this concept of diminishing or, you know, finite resources in this country. And we have an, an embarrassment of wealth in this country. And there's enough for everybody to live comfortably. But we live in a place where there are 100 apples and the richest among us have taken 98 of the apples and are saying to the rest of the country, yo, you better get those two apples before those black people come and take them and pitting the poor against the poor without turning around and looking at the fact that there is somebody holding 98 of the apples, right? And so that's really what, what it really breaks down to is everybody thinks that there is only a certain amount and if I give you, I will have less. We have an embarrassment of riches in this country. And until we start admitting that, we will continue to have racial strife and socioeconomic strife because it's always going to be pitting the poor against the haves and the have-nots. And in this country, race and socioeconomic class are intricately intertwined and almost inseparable. Now, Hayden, you've got, and that, that was you know amazing perspective and insight that you provided on that. But you kind of come from that school, for lack of a better word, you know, as a member, as a faculty member in the higher education system, right? How do we, as a society, move to the point where we can disseminate that information a little bit more broadly, right? So like you even have like students enrolled in higher education. We don't even know if they're all going back to campus, learning, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like. And obviously there are still many issues in the textbooks and books that kind of exist to date. So how do we kind of bring that broader awareness and understanding of the stories beyond what might've been perpetuated or passed down over the years that don't necessarily tell the full story. And even to bring it back to Kanye, um, the, one of the points that John Sally brought up is that you know, the question of where people are getting their information, right? So Kanye is spewing these unfound kind of stories and facts, but like he's looking it up somewhere and he's going off of what he's found. And that's part of the issue where you don't have everyone kind of enrolled in classes and curriculums that teach the right things. And then people kind of leave it to themselves to find what's on the internet. And then you've got other people writing things on the internet. So it just kind of creates this vacuum of uncertainty and untruth, right? So how do we kind of break that cycle to really make sure that people are understanding the right things and the right stories and getting the right lessons out of everything? 
Well, my philosophy is really simple. I figure if I create a more equitable world and a more knowledgeable corner of my world and fix what I can fix in my corner of the world, and then you, Jeff, are fixing what you can fix in your corner of the world, and Sam, you're doing your corner, and Trevor, you're doing your corner, hopefully these corners will all butt up against each other and we'll have a better world that'll move forward. And everybody does what they need to do. So Jordan Peele right now, is creating a different narrative for people to to watch with Lovecraft, uh, you know. So that's one. That's what he's doing, right? Uh, you have Tyler Perry creating a different narrative with filmmaking. But like it or love love his films, he's creating a different narrative when it comes to black filmmaking. Uh, there are teachers out there who are pushing to have the 1619 and added to the curriculum so that there is some truth to how we talk about our history in this country. You know, I do things like having our workshops and stuff like that at Manhattan College, and I'm creating a symposium with all multicultural directors in all colleges in New York City to start with, but hopefully broadening it out to New York State where we sit down and talk about, well, what information are your students getting? What information are my students getting? How are they disseminating it? How are they digesting it? How, what's going over and having impact on your campus? And how can I recreate that on my campus, right? So those are the things that have to happen. And there is no panacea. There is no magic bullet. There is no kumbaya moment. It is work. And one of the things I tell people all the time is that we didn't get here overnight. This country wasn't like this utopia and then something happened and then we just automatically shifted to this place that is based in bias and racism, sexism, and socioeconomic class uh, discrimination. That didn't happen overnight. And so the amount of time that it takes to get where we are is the same amount of time that it's going to take to get rid of some of these things. So a lot of people get exhausted and by doing this work and they'll start down a road and when they don't see immediate results or they don't see substantial enough results, they give up and they stop the fight. This is long work. This is exhaustive work, but this is work that is necessary or else we will never have a country that all people feel like it belongs to them. I think that was a very poignant way to, you know, wrap up that section, in my opinion. God, Hayden, you are a very tough act to follow. Super insightful with like the knowledge you've dropped tonight with, you know, Lovecraft and things for us to look out for, you know, and keep a watchful eye as black men, as, you know, as a black society. But as we kind of like transition and and let you go, is there anything that you'd want to talk about or plug? Here's your opportunity. Thanks, man. And thanks to everybody for having me on. Every Thursday, I do a Facebook Live podcast called The Greenhouse Effect, and that's Thursdays at noon. Uh, you can search me on uh, my name, Hayden Green. I also put them on YouTube afterwards, so you can search YouTube to catch the old episodes. I'm also a photographer, so if you're looking for art, please hit me up. Check my Instagram page. Uh, that's GLPPICS. G-L-P-P-I-C-S. And, uh, you know, just look through there. My latest collection is uh, actually something that I've been having fun with. Uh, I'm depicting essential workers 
in the traditional, in that picture that you've seen Malcolm X by any means necessary. So they're all looking out the window that came the way Malcolm X was, but we have bus drivers looking out the window. We have uh, train operators looking out the window. We have nurses looking out the window and it's called by any means essential. That's some fun stuff that's going on there, but there's also a bunch of fine art stuff there as well. And come check me out at Manhattan College. Most of the stuff we're doing is online and, and therefore open to the public. And so that's manhattan.edu. Check us out and hopefully we're doing stuff that jars your mind and it educates you just a little bit more than before you uh, walked in the door. It's all very dope, man. I highly encourage you all to check Aiden out. Very insightful, man. And like I said, someone I've looked up to for, you know, over 15 years now. So thanks again, Hayden, for kind of coming through and blessing us, man, for the show. Um, we got to get you back again, man, to kind of continue this conversation, man. But glad we could have you on for this episode in this moment. Yes. Thank you, sir. Definitely have you on for, for the series finale. Happy to be here. Anytime, brothers. Okay. Once again, got to give it up to our man, Hayden. Definitely did his thing tonight, man. A lot of great insight. So that's the first shout out. But for my next shout out, I got to give it up to HBO. I mean, they did drop the ball with Game of Thrones, but they made up for it with giving us a great one and only one and done season of The Watchmen. And now it seems like Lovecraft Country is going to be another show to watch and probably an Emmy Award winning show in the near future. They're keeping it all the way true, keeping it all the way accurate when it comes down to depicting the brutalities of racism in this country. They're not sparing any feelings. They're not leaving out any details. And they're adding some artistic ability that's not compromising the brutal realities of what occurred in our history. Um, so shout out to HBO, man. I'm going to keep watching. I think I'm definitely going to be a longtime fan for as long as Lovecraft Country lasts for for it, man. Just to pick up on that, man, and double down, I want to shout out some of my former colleagues over there at HBO, man, that that are been behind the great marketing for the show, which, which definitely lured me in. So big props out to Javon, Gluck, Dana, Alex, the whole gang over there for, for launching another great show, man. You guys are doing great work and making me a little envious that I'm not still there riding with y'all, but we'll get into that for another day, man. But it's great to see that happen. And props again to the whole network for bringing more of these types of stories and bringing more color to the screen to increase our options of diversity when we want to see ourselves in, in these great shows we love. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I definitely feel the same way. I mean, the HBO has definitely stepped up their game in the in the last couple of years. And we've seen some, you know, just really like transformative TV that none of us would have imagined 10 years ago or, you know, less than that. So definitely a big, big shout out, you know, big up to HBO. I also wanted to, to shout out, you know, someone who I've been using as a personal trainer for you know, like the last week, as I've kind of told you guys, you know, I was sick, I was in the hospital. Now I'm on like a personal journey of getting myself right and together. So definitely wanted to shout out Joseph Lavelle. He's he's over at Chasing Success Fit. That's his Instagram name. Definitely check him out. He's great. Yeah, definitely going to keep keep working at it, guys. Shout out to Crazy Joe. Word. And as always, thank you all for riding with us again for another week. We'll be back at it next Monday with a fresh episode to drop. In the meantime, y'all know what to do. Hit us up at FRFR, the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you want to rock with us. Be sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app, be it Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, whatever you choose. We're on there. If we're not on there, hit us up. We'll make sure you can find the show where you want to listen. In the meantime, y'all stay good. Y'all stay safe. We'll check y'all out next Monday. Peace.